coming in the second weekend of February. So uh, we are starting a new series today called Confronting Christianity. And um, first I'll introduce the series, spend some time doing that, and then I will get into discussing today's topic more specifically. Uh, But the new series starts today, and the first six weeks we're going to be looking at some questions that many people have. If you ask someone why they don't believe or follow Christ, they might refer to one of these six different questions. And here's the questions. You can see them more clearly. How can you say there's one true faith? We'll tackle that one today. Uh, Week two will be, doesn't Christianity limit our freedom? That'll be talk number two. Third week will be, how can you take the Bible literally? And the fourth week will be, hasn't science disproven Christianity? And the fifth talk will be, how can a loving God send people to hell? And then last, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? So the series will be in two parts. So I've described part one of the series. There'll be a part two. I'll describe that later on to the series coming up um, later on. But, um, but we know that many who don't follow Christ have these questions. We also know that many Christians have these questions as well. If you were to ask any Christian whether they've been a believer most of their life or later on in life, if you said, what are some of your biggest struggles with the Christian faith? I would guess that most would probably refer to one of those six questions as one of the biggest questions that they have themselves. That's true for unbelievers, also true for believers as well. But the thing with Christians is that Christians are kind of like somehow conditioned in the church to be taught, whether directly or indirectly, hey, don't talk about your questions or don't raise those kinds of questions. Just keep them inside, keep them internal and wrestle with them yourself. And we don't mean to communicate that, but it gets communicated in some way, whether indirectly or directly, um, just how we end up functioning in the church we just don't often address those things or talk about those things um, as we experience them in our hearts and minds. So there are, I think there are really three barriers to faith. And I'm pulling this from one of Tim Keller's books called The Reason for God, where he experiences himself in his own personal faith story. And he says this, the first is intellectual barrier. And this is what we think. And this is kind of dealing with what we're talking about in the series, these questions that are mentioned above But sometimes these questions, I think they can serve as like an outer shell, so to speak. Uh, That's like a protective layer. So when you meet someone who's not a believer, they might have, they might throw these questions that you say, I just can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. And that's like this kind of outer shell, so to speak, a protective outer shell for their unbelief. But if you really dig in there further, you'll start to see that there's some other stuff going on most of the time. And there's some, some personal stuff happening there. We'll talk about that just here in a minute. But just getting these questions answered that I've just described to you doesn't mean that someone will automatically come to faith. We can't just say, look, I've answered, you know, question one, two, three, four, five, and six. Therefore, do you call yourself a Christian now? Because people can get those questions answered sometimes, but still not ever make a personal commitment to follow Jesus. So the second barrier is this personal one. You might describe it like it's what we feel, right? What we feel or sense to be true about the world. So if our questions get answered, we might still, we still might claim this doesn't seem real to us. So, so you could go through and have the persuasive argument with someone and, and answer all their questions that they have, but they might still walk away and say, yeah, but I just don't think it's, it's not true for me. I don't really believe that. And so there's this personal element to the faith 
that we um, are invited into this personal relationship with Jesus. And there is a sense in which that's something for us to, to experience, right? Not just like, you know, it's not some abstract thing. There's a ways for us to experience it through prayer and God's word, being part of the body. But there is an experiential personal element to the Christian faith as well. Now, the third barrier we can encounter is a social barrier. And this is who we associate with. So you may get your questions answered. You might even have a personal encounter with Jesus. But if you aren't surrounded by Christian friends in community, your faith is not going to grow. I often say, tell people that I, th- I really believe that your closest friends, when you're a Christian, I think your closest friends should probably be other Christians, like-minded Christians. Doesn't mean you don't have unbelieving friends. I think you should have those as well. But your closest, most tight-knit group, I think, should be people that are like-minded in the faith and that can help spur you on in growth uh, towards uh, Christ-likeness. So if you have those, your, your questions answered and you have your, um, this personal encounter with Jesus, but if your friendship group never changes, you're, just, you're like the only believer in that group, then chances are you're going to start fading back into the things that, that they're saying and believing and not what God is calling you to. So the series we're going to be covering will focus mostly on those intellectual barriers to faith that I covered in point number one. But I want this series to also give you a new perspective on what it means to have doubts and questions. We've talked about this a lot the last semester with our, our Wednesday night discussions, and this sort of ties into that a little bit. But I want to give you a new perspective on doubt before we get into our topic for today. So first off, those with real questions will have real, I'm sorry, those with real faith will have real doubts. If you never wrestle with your faith or ask hard questions, then I think your faith's not really going to grow the way that it should. And you will set yourself up for future faith implosion. So faith without doubt is like a human body without antibodies in it. So how many of you guys, you love science, you love biology, raise your hand. I saw, I saw some more hands go up. Okay, there's still some more hands. Um, so you love science and, and, and studying those kinds of things. Well, you know that the, um, the reality with antibodies, how you get antibodies. So if you get, if, if a kid is born and they're never exposed to germs, that sa- can sound good, but it's really not good, right? Because their body never produces the antibodies to fight off those infections. And so they end up really, really sick and possibly die because they have no, essentially no immune system. I think the same is true with our doubts. If you never expose yourself or think about the doubts and questions that you might have, you just pretend like you're not even there, then you're not going to produce the, 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 the true growing faith in yourself. I think that God wants to grow in you that needs to be there for you to have a lifelong flourishing faith. It's not going to happen. So the second point is honest doubt can produce depth. We know that when, uh, not that I'm encouraging you to just think up things that you don't really think or have questions or doubts about, but when you really wrestle with those things, I think you grow deeper and deeper into your faith. If someone has never wrestled with those questions, they probably are going to have a shallow faith. Thirdly, uh, believers need to understand the doubts of unbelievers. You might be thinking to yourself, now why in the world would I go and study all these questions and doubts that I don't really have? And I would say that's fair, but I think that you need to because if you're going to love people well, if you're going to have friends that are unbelievers, 
then you need to wrestle with their questions so that you can love them well and hopefully help them come to a place of following Christ. And then last, uh, learn to doubt your doubts. Now, that might sound weird. Like, what does that mean, learn, learn to doubt your doubts? That sounds like some kind of weird trick I just played on you, right? Well, this might sound confusing, but I really believe that every doubt is based on a leap of faith. I'll explain what I mean by that. So every doubt that we have, it comes with a set of beliefs behind it. So take, for example, the question we're going to wrestle with today is there can't just be one true religion, right? Well, can that statement be proven? Can someone prove that there can't just be one true religion? Like I went to the Middle East several years ago to see some friends over there, and they live in a country that's very, um, very Muslim. And if I went there and said this statement, like there can't just be one true religion, in that culture, they look at me and say, well, why not? Why not? Why can't there just be one true religion? Of course, they believe it's theirs. I don't agree with that, but that's a different sermon altogether. But someone, someone says this statement that there can't just be one true religion because they hold another set of beliefs that's behind that statement. So every doubt that we have is based on a leap of faith. So Tim Keller, in one of his books, he says it this way. He says, how do you know your belief, meaning the belief that's behind your doubts, how do you know your belief is true? It will be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own, but that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. So what I'm trying to help you understand this morning is that everyone stands on this platform of faith. That's true for the believer, and it's also true for the skeptic. Everyone stands on this platform of faith. There's just no getting around that. So our first question for this series is how can you say there's only one true faith? Now, many today believe it is bad to try to persuade someone to believe what you believe. That doesn't seem loving to us in our culture. Like, how dare you try to, you know, persuade me to believe something that, you know, you believe it. I don't really believe it. So some see it as like oppressive or um, some other word you might want to throw in there that is you're trying to convince me of your belief system. Therefore, that's, that's oppressing me in some way and you don't have a right to do that. That seems unloving to us. There's a bumper sticker that I've heard about that says, my God is too big for any one religion. And of course, that, that sounds nice, but is it true? You know, I think I've shared before uh, several years ago, I have an, uh, an aunt who lives down in Houston, and, uh, and she's not a believer. She was raised in the church. She kind of rejected her faith. And then now she uh, is kind of like a universalist, believes that all roads lead to God. We've had conversations about this before, and uh, her and I. And she's asked lots of good questions, but she's still in this place in her 70s now, saying, I don't really believe that, you know, that the God of the Bible is who God really is. And if you talk to her, and there's also another story I'll tell you in a minute just about how uh, my, wife's had, my wife had a great uncle that I met a few years ago. And we're just at this dinner uh, at, at someone's house, 
never met the guy before, and he starts, he knows I'm a pastor, starts peppering me with questions, and he has the same kind of mindset that, like, all roads lead to God. And we got in this kind of big discussion just over a meal in front of the family about this. It was kind of an awkward situation, right? Um, but we had this conversation many years ago. And so both my aunt and her uncle kind of believed the same things, this idea that all roads lead to God. And it sounds nice. It sounds like that might be true, right, to the skeptic. But you may have heard similar ideas, like all roads lead to God. You know, every religion sees just part of the truth, but none can see the whole truth. There's a really popular analogy that some will use. I think someone said it was like a Hindu story or a Hindu proverb that, that people use to convey this. Here's a cartoon rendering of what I'm about to describe to you. And it's a story of this elephant. And there are these blind men that find this elephant. And so all the people in that, in that little comic thing are, are, are supposedly blind, right? And so what they've done is they've, they've approached this elephant, and they're all blind. They can't really see the full reality. They can only see part of the reality. And what they, what they come up with is that, you know, um, you know, someone who approaches the front of the elephant, they, they touch the tusk of the elephant, and they're like, oh, an elephant's like a spear. And then someone, you know, has a hold of the ears, and they say, no, no, it's more like a fan. And then someone says, has the trunk, and they're like, no, no, it's kind of like a snake. And then someone has grabbed a hold of the, one of the legs, and they say, no, 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 it's like an elephant is like a tree. And then there's someone who's along the side that says, no, no, an elephant is like a wall. And there's the unfortunate guy who is under the tail. What a bad place to be with an elephant, right? You're behind the elephant under the tail, and he grabs a hold of the tail, and he says, no, 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 the elephant is like a rope. And so you see the analogy they're trying to make is that, that these blind men, no one can fully see the elephant because they're all blind. They just have part of it. But the idea is that if you put it all together, they could all see the truth. But the problem is they're, they're of course, blind. So it sounds good, and they're using this analogy to show how, you know, every religion has just, just part of the truth. They can't see the whole truth. And that's the limitation of humanity. It sounds nice. It even sounds humble. But there are several problems with this analogy. And the first is this. The first problem is that this illustration backfires on those who use it. And here's how it does that. Because this story is told from the perspective of someone who is not blind, right? So how can someone claim that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless, they are, unless that person is claiming to see the whole elephant themselves? So this person claims that everyone else is blind, seeing only part of the truth, but they, they, are the, they are claiming to see the entire truth, the whole truth. Something they just claim that no one else can do. So you see how this whole, it, it kind of implodes on itself when you think of it in that light. So it seems humble, but the person who uses it is claiming to see more truth than anyone else. That's the first objection we can take to this elephant analogy. The second problem with this picture is that it basically says that all the world's religions are equally good and believe the same thing. So if you look at the elephant, it's basically saying that, you know, the elephant represents the truth, and not of a, not, not, no, one, no one can see the entire truth. But what it's also saying is that all religions are basically good and teach the exact same thing. 
So is that true? Well, of course, we say, no, it's not true. What about the religions that require a child sacrifice? So throughout all of history, there's been these religions, these awful religions, that they require child sacrifice. So is that, is that equally good to some other possible religion? So maybe they're talking about the major religions like, you know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, or Buddhism. You know, many will say that the major religions teach the same core truths. If you look at those, you know, five or six major ones versus these fringe ones you might find somewhere else in the world. And those truths might be something like, you know, be a good person, you know, make the world a better place. If you were to ask anybody, you know, what is the essence of most religions, they might, they might say those two things, you know, be a good person and try to leave the world a better place than when you found it. They might say it that way. Now, but these religions don't believe the same things. They disagree on some fundamental truths about reality and the nature of God. So Christianity, for example, we have this idea of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is one God, but three persons. Jesus is God in the flesh. He took our sin upon himself. He died and rose again to save us, and he's the only way to salvation, and we believe that as Christians. Then there's Judaism. So God is not three persons, but only one, and Jesus was a false Messiah. They killed him for it, claimed to be God, and they don't think he fulfilled these messianic prophecies, even though he fulfilled over 400 prophecies. That's Judaism. Then Islam. Islam believes in one God, no trinity, they believe that Jesus was a good prophet, a good man, good teacher, a good example, but not God in the flesh. And they don't believe that he was killed on a cross and resurrected. They don't believe that either. Then Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God at all, but they just work to achieve nirvana, the state of, of, of bliss, devoid of any suffering. Then there's Hinduism. Some Hindus will tell you they worship just one God. Some will tell you they worship many gods. And some will have a combination of the two. But a Hindu could worship one or hundreds of gods. Some of them think that Jesus may have been a version of one of their gods, like their god Vishnu, which also takes on the form of other animals like a cow. There's that belief in Hinduism. But what sets Christianity apart is this concept of grace. That is favor that cannot be earned. And every other religion is a man-centered code on how to get to God. So we cannot say that, that all religions teach the same thing when they make contradicting claims about the nature of God and historical events like the resurrection of Jesus. We can't say that. Because either Jesus resurrected or he didn't. There's not really an in-between on resurrection. It either happened or it didn't happen. So two people claiming opposite things on this topic, they can't both be right. So this idea that all roads lead to God also doesn't fit with the statements that Jesus makes. I'll cover these very quickly. I'm just going to read them and move on to the next one. John 10:30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, clearly showing that I think that he is God. There's John 8:58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Also pointing to the fact that he is God. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then John 10, 9, I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So you see these, these claims of Jesus, do any of these statements sound like, you know, just, just believe whatever you want, but I'm sure it'll work out for you in the end? Do they, do they sound like that when Jesus says those words? I told you about my, my, my aunt and then Courtney's uncle who believes all religions are equally valid and teach the same thing. So let's just imagine for a moment, what if that kind of God truly exists? What if there is a supernatural being out there allowing all these conflicting views about him, her, or it? Not sure what pronouns I should use there, right? To coexist, creating all this confusion in the world. Would that be a more loving God if that God existed? Because when, I would ask this question of anyone, when has that God ever stepped into human history and revealed himself? If that's who God is, wouldn't it be helpful if he'd clear things up for us just a bit? You know, all that stuff about Jesus being the only way. I was just kidding about that. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. Like, when has that God ever shown up and said, hey, here's, here's the deal, here's reality? I can't point to any historical events or any claim that someone has ever met that God that cleared things up for us in that way. You know, if that's who God is, then wouldn't it be loving to show up in history and to tell us that? Tim Keller puts it this way in one of his books. He says, if Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The bottom line is we cannot all be equally right about the nature of God. So the beliefs of different world religions, they contradict one another. So either we are wrong about all of them or one of them is the truth. They can't all be right. So I believe we don't have to speculate about what if God showed up in history and revealed himself. If you're a Christian, then you believe that it already happened and that it happened through Jesus, that Jesus did show up in the flesh. You see, most other religions don't even make the claim that God in the flesh, God came in the flesh. Christianity is the only one that sticks out its own neck to historical analysis and, and analyzing what took place in history and claims that God came in the flesh. Most won't even dare make that claim because you can't really, you can't really argue against what took place with Jesus if you look at history. So the beliefs, we, we don't have to speculate. We know that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. We believe that as Christians. There's a story in Mark chapter 2 about Jesus healing a man who's paralyzed. And Jesus is teaching in this house, and it was so packed, you might remember the story, that no one else could get into that house. And this man's friends, they were so determined to get to him, to Jesus, they, they dig this hole in the roof, and they lower their friend down. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But this is really a confusing response to what's happened in the story because the man, when he was lowered through the roof, 
Um, he wasn't lowered in order to have his sins forgiven. He was lowered so that he could be healed. That's why his friends brought him to Jesus. So do you think these men carried him all that way, dug through that roof, just to have his sins forgiven? No, they wanted to be healed, physically healed. And the religious leaders observe what's taking place, and they respond in verse 7. Why does this man, Jesus, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So these religious leaders, they know the impact of what Jesus has just said. And Jesus responds in uh, verse 9. Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I know you, you know this story, most of you do. But it's interesting when you look at the story from this perspective, that the claim Jesus makes, the religious leaders are saying that only God has the authority to forgive sins, but Jesus doesn't deny that claim that they're making, that only God has the authority to forgive sins. He claims to be God by saying that he has the authority to forgive sins. This is not the kind of statement that someone makes if they're just a good man or just a good teacher. Whenever we look back in history, in the ancient world, you know, surprisingly the Roman Empire in that, in that time, they were surprisingly fairly open and tolerant of all kinds of religions. They embraced a polytheism, meaning many gods. And so at, at first, Christianity was kind of seen as like, oh, it's just one among many. You worship your God, I worship my gods. But then everyone had their own God back then. But what kind of world? That sounds like a loving and tolerant place to be. But if you know your history, you know that, that was, it was not a very loving and tolerant place to be. It was a brutal world that people lived in back then. There were large disparities between rich and poor. And by contrast, Christians were the ones that were insisting there was this one true God. And that can sound exclusive and sound, it can sound unloving to say that. But they were the ones, Christians, who were welcoming those who would, whom the culture had marginalized. They were the ones, the churches were, were combined with, with people of different races and classes and the church was the place that was like unlike anywhere else in society where you would see this cross-section of different kinds of people, race and class and ethnicities. And Christians were the ones that were caring not just for their own poor, but Christians went as far as to care for all the poor of society. And that was surprising to so many people back then. In that world, women had low-standing in society and being subjected to forced marriages sometimes or high levels of female infanticide, lack of equality, but Christianity gave them much greater standing and equally and equality than previously existed in that time of the world. During the ancient plagues in the first two centuries, Christians were the ones risking their own lives by caring for the sick and the dying, risking getting infected with disease 
so they could care for someone else that was in need. This kind of hospitality was unheard of back then. So why would Christians do such a thing? Why would Christians live like that? Because at the heart of their belief system, there was this man who healed the sick. There was this man who cared for the poor. There was this man who died for his enemies, and he prayed for their forgiveness while he was on the cross. And this is what gives you and I the power to live in the same way. It's what gives us the power to live in, in in such a way that's unlike what might be done to us in the world. So all through the Gospels, we, we see Jesus doing things that only God can do. We see him commanding the wind, forgiving sins, feeding multitudes, and, and even raising the dead. His final words to the disciples, I think, show that he definitely was God, of course. In Matthew 28, he says this, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These words don't sound like that God is okay with this idea, that yeah, just, just whatever you want to believe, it's, it's fine. That, that all roads just lead to God. It, it sounds like God came in the flesh and he spoke clearly to the world about who he is and what he wants his people to do as they share him with the rest of the world. Rebecca McLaughlin, in, her, in one of her books, she says this, Jesus claims rule over all of heaven and earth. He presents himself not as one possible path to God, but as God himself. We may choose to disbelieve him, but he cannot be one truth among many. He has not left us that option. 